you're in with the ghost of radio. Welcome back to this, our shared podcast, all about mid-century horror radio, all for us. All for one and one for all about mid-century horror radio, right? That's what we continue to do. I defy you to show me the other place on this internet where we don't just listen, but we discuss, we make sense, we enjoy. There is no other place, so let's get in that cauldron. Okay, which episode have we pulled out for this week? Ah, this is called Goody Two Shoes from The Price of Fear. Goody Two Shoes from our old friend Vincent Price and The Price of Fear. That's what you'll be listening to. In your own way and time, you will go off to listen. You will open a browser, you will go some non-tracking search engine and either type in relicradio.com, they have everything, or go to thearchive.org, the Internet Archive. Go to that search engine and type in Price of Fear Radio single episodes, and you will soon be listening to this episode, and then you come back here. You come back here to discuss and Just make sure that you have time set aside to do that. I will give you a bit of a warning. I like to give you a heads up sometimes in a very sincere way. This is not lights out saying, oh, if you scare easily, there is a suicide at the end of the episode. And it's not graphically described, but it's bad enough. So if that is something you do not want to encounter, skip it. Go listen to one of our other episodes. But if you are ready for that, then go listen to Goody Two Shoes. Off you go. See you soon. Okay, we are back from listening. And what did you make of it? This is such an unusual kind of story. And really, so much of the genius of it is in the telling. This is an episode that Vincent Price tells us. He's not involved in this one personally, not this time. You expect him to be the friend that they invite over to experience their country cottage, but he is not. But it's well written, and he does a good job with it. And the understatement in the story is really what makes it. It turns into a tough one, doesn't it? But it does so long before that upsetting ending. Long before then, it becomes something a little bit scary. And you know us, we're going to dive right into that meaning right now at the very start. This is a tale of domestic horror. This is taking us into Agatha Christie territory. Anne is the, you, you know, she's presented in so many words as the young sensual wife who you wouldn't ask to be a good housewife because she's she's too sexy, you know. You let things slide in her housekeeping because she's so desirable. But then they go to this cottage and somehow she becomes the world's best cook and housekeeper and her husband is so, so proud of her. That's what she says toward the end. You were suddenly so proud of me. And that's what does it, right? That's the killer. 
That's the killer for both of the women in this story, that there's only one way to win male respect, and it's a way that actually strips you of your identity and your self-respect. And then nothing good happens. We will get into it. Let's get into it with that always low-key, very effective intro to The Price of Fear, which of course, as usual, goes right into the story. The Price of Fear. Vincent Price presents Michael Jaston, Sandra Clark, and Daphne Hurd in Goody Two-Shoes by William Ingram. Vincent Price. Hello and welcome. The story I'm about to tell you is a love story. If not of perfect love, at least the perfecting of it. Something difficult to achieve. Something which can often lead to disastrous, indeed horrific results. The perfecting of love? What does it mean? Even after listening to the whole episode, we ask ourselves, what does that really mean? What love is perfected? Oh, I get that feeling that this really is a story about David, that this really is a story about a guy who marries a woman because she's a free spirit and loves that about her, but also wishes she would be a conventional housewife. And then he would be able to love her entirely if she could do these two completely opposed things. We learn at the very start that they both wanted to get out of the rat race. But before we learn that, there's that very, very tricky intro, right? Oh, they were perfect for each other. They were just made, a match made in heaven, as they used to say. But are they really And that first desire to get away from the rat race, their marriage is already failing, right? They kind of drifted away from each other. Oh, nobody knows why. Oh, what could the reason be? When you are unhappy with your situation, but you don't want to be, and you can't change in the way that you think you're expected to change, Anne is in that situation. She knows what David would really like her to become. She cannot do it, and so she takes the detour. She takes the uh, red herring route of becoming the ditz. Oh, she's just this crazy, silly woman. I cannot tell you how much we all hate the way he keeps calling her idiot all the way through this episode. It is a term of endearment for her. But she has to do it because it's her only way out. It's the only thing allowing her not to become a housewife. She's too flighty to be a housewife. She's not capable of that. And that's why at the beginning of this scene, well, toward the end of this scene we're about to listen to, he says, I thought we were going to buy, you know, basically one of those plain, boring cardboard cutout houses where everybody does the same thing and all the women are housewives. She simply, she cannot let that happen, so she has to press hard on the pedal of being the irrational woman to get out of it and to get into this cottage. Let's hear the clip and let's just silently have a moment for one of, you know, you know my most hated meme of all is people 
breaking into houses. Oh, here's a house I like. Knock, knock. Oh, nobody answered. Oh, I'm trying the handle now. It's not locked. Oh, I'm just coming in. Mm, 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 mm. <laughs> you know how I feel about that. Oh, but the scene goes from that bad to a much darker worse. Oh, you finally made it then. I'm not altogether sure. What can you see? Mm, only that the windows need cleaning. Mm. Obviously hasn't been lived in for ages. And ages. Now what the devil do you think you're up to? Oh, breaking and entering. But you can't just... It's bolted as well as locked. Ah, well, that's put paid. I'm not beaten yet. Now where are you off to? <laughs> Round the back. Oh, come on, don't be chicken. Might as well go the whole hog. Famous last words. Anybody at home? And if there were, I'd like to hear you talk yourself out of it. Hello? God, what a shambles. Well, not exactly house and gardens. I'm whacked. There's a three-legged chair if you want a breather. Now where? Oh, the living room is huge. I'll take your word for it. Oh, open hearth. Ingle nook. A twisting little staircase. It's not very safe, but going right up to the bedrooms. <sighs> Reluctantly, I have to take your word for that, too. Anne, love. Anne? Darling. Hmm? Now what are you pondering? Only the possibilities. Come on, Anne, I'm starved, and it doesn't look as though we're going to get invited to dinner. What possibilities? Oh, only possibilities. Oh, darling, you must be joking. But for God's sake, it looks as though a bomb hit it. Possibilities was what I said. But there aren't any. Use your head. The, the roof leaks. That can be rethatched. That, that staircase. Will obviously need a bit of fixing. But, but it's a positive slum. Soap, water and elbow grease, me old dearie. Anne. You're not mad about the idea, are you? No. No, you're obviously not. Well, you're quite right. It, it's getting late. Oh, to hell with that. It's just that you know, I thought getting away from it all was part of the general idea. We'd as good as settle for something on that new estate. Estate? Oh, yes, there's always that. But who the hell wants to live in a boot box when there's the challenge of something like this? Challenge is right. Please. Oh, please, David. It might not even be on the market. It might, though. Well, at least think about it, please. Please. Idiot. All right, I'll think about it. But for God's sake, don't set your heart on it. I already have. Because I don't know what else to do. It's so clear. So she's trying to get the household in order. The local woman is supposed to come help her out, but never shows up. And everything's gone wrong until she comes home from going to the grocery store to try to shop. She doesn't even know quite how. And everything is all fixed up, right? <sighs> There's clearly some spirit at work, so very clearly that when she says, well, Mrs. Perkins must have come and done it all, we know precisely, immediately, that this is not the case. But Mrs. Perkins does eventually show up and give us the story. And again, uh, this is taking us back to our recent listen to A Dream of Death. 
I must say the idea of the woman who is left at the altar on her wedding day and never, who never recovers, whose spirit cannot die because it is either living out its rage or its anguish, is something. Boy, you only ever encounter it in stories. It's just not something that has any connection to the real world, really. Is Dickens to blame for all of this? He's to blame for so many things. It could be him. Well, let's hear Mrs. Perkins tell us that story once again. So, started already as she... She? I might have known. Should have expected it in view of what's gone afore. But it being such a long time now since the last couple move out. Always townies. One foot inside the door in its love at first sight. But no sooner settled than moving on again. And all is of a sudden like. Didn't they give a reason? Us locals never got that close. None of our business, was it? So what call us to ask the ways and wherefores? Just a moment ago you said... Started again, has she? Did I, Mum? She. You did say she. Two shoes. I'm sorry? Goody, two shoes. Ah, you can smile. Just a name for her, good as any other. Nursery rhyme name. No telling for why they first give it to her. But when I were a little maid... I used to listen to the old ones talking in the village and telling the tale and smile, just smile. Tell me about her, Mrs. Perkins. Huh? The right to know. The right to know. Well, abandoned on her wedding day at the church, according to hearsay. Oh, nothing so much thought in these days, but in Goody's time. Well, even now, possible to imagine the snidings and the whys and wherefores on every tongue. This cottage is already prepared, seemingly, so tis here she comes and stays and never ventures, swearing never to be seen again by another living soul. Out by night and in by day was what they reckoned, but not even the night poachers and the light ever caught a glimpse of her. From wedding day on, long dead when they finally notices no smoke from her chimney, nettles his eyes are roofed up, long, long dead, so no face to be put to her, even in death, but seems grave all arranged and paid for. Even something in her own hand wrote for her stone. Accept the gifts I offer. Accept them, come what may. But see but once their giver and live to rue the day. How, how did you know that, Mum? I don't know. But you've never even seen the grave, have you? No, no, I haven't. Mrs. Perkins. Oh, I'm sorry, Mum. I, I must leave you now. Oh, but please. No, must. Uh, Mrs. Perkins, no, please. Must I tell you, must. Oh. 
It's powerful the way the woman who plays Anne does really good voice acting throughout. And it is powerful the way she is calling after her. She's frightened at that point. And it's a very literal, like, well, don't leave me all alone in this house now that you've told me there's some, some crazy spirit in it. The fear wears off because, of course, Anne is, by living in the house, by being the one who stays in the house, she isn't the one who gets up in the morning, has breakfast, and goes to the office all day like David. She is in the house, and so she falls under the spell very quickly. And it's a wonderful thing for her, right? This woman who is not domestic doesn't have to be anymore. That's taken care of. It's a dream she might have dreamt many times, but thought, oh, that could never happen. She doesn't have to do anything domestic, yet the house is so well run. And it's great, except that it makes David so happy. That's the problem. As she says later, he suddenly becomes proud of her. And he wants to invite their friends over. And they talk for a long time in a very hurtful way in front of Anne, Victoria, and what's his name, the friends. Oh, when we heard from David, we figured he was having us come out to save him. Or he wanted us to see the shambles this place was. Everyone knows you're hopeless. Oh, we thought it was going to be a big, gigantic mess because you were involved. Very cruel, really. And... David saying, oh, no, no, Anna's suddenly become really good at housekeeping. (laughs) She's suddenly a real woman and a real person with some meaning in her life. Mm, He doesn't say those exact words, but that's the message. (sighs) This, oh, it's bad, isn't it? In this tiny little bit of a scene I'm going to play where Throughout the conversation, Anne is starting to kind of take on the persona of Goody Two-Shoes. And then she has this little uh, scene where she yells at Victoria. The way she laughs at the end is one of the most frightening things I think we're ever going to encounter. It's really scary because it starts out, you can't tell if she is crying from the breakdown she's having with her loss of identity or if she's laughing. Her identity is being lost in two ways. She's being misidentified as somebody who now is very domestic, thank God, because now that means she has some meaning and importance as a person. She didn't before. And she is channeling the woman who used to live there. And the way that laugh starts, and the way it keeps going, A lot of people try to play that out like the crazy laugh that goes on too long. This is the real deal. And their embarrassed, uncomfortable little attempts to join in, super painful. Um, shall I give you a hand with this? You stay out of there. You hear me? You hear well what I'm telling you? It is my place. Mind? No others. No damn cause for her to go meddling in. You hear me? Anne. Darling. (laughs) <laughs> Your faces, though. <laughs> that that's chilling, but we are only turning the corner into the scary parts of the story. There are two. The first one is 
when Goody deserts Anne. Not only does she not clean up the house anymore, Goody, but she prevents Anne from being able to. This is horrible, right? Because Anne has finally gained some status and respect by being a good housekeeper. And now, not only is that stripped from her, but she's forced to be an even worse housekeeper than she ever was before. Goody made her far greater than she could ever have been or wanted to be, and now Goody is making her far worse than she ever would have been on her own. And this scene, where it's very abrupt, as Vincent Price says, like, pretty soon it became clear something was up, and we go right into this horrid scene with David. His fury at her is crazy. He is frightening and crazy to be that angry with her. And you get the feeling he's that angry because he feels like she has betrayed him and made a fool of him. Here I thought you were a great housekeeper and wife. I gave you my praise. I publicly gave you credit and respect. And now you're humiliating me. Oh, it is scary. His fury is horrid. Oh, it's, oh, it's, uh, if it didn't end the way it did, this would be the worst part of the episode. As it is, it's bad. I feel more tension in this scene than I do even in that final scene where David's walking up the walk and you know that something has gone wrong. This is worse. It happened several months later. Summer had gone. Autumn was in the trees. Anne had started out to the village when she remembered her shopping list on the kitchen table. As she passed the half-drawn curtains of the living room windows, she caught her first glimpse of her. Small. Very small. Much older than I... Oh, how very old she looks. Not at all frightening, though. Such white hair pulled neatly into a tight bun at her neck. Made to seem even whiter, I suppose, by her long black dress, reaching right to the ground. From any age. And yet, if I stretch just a little higher over the sill, I can just about see the stone floor. And on tiptoe, peering over the window ledge, Anne saw, peeping out from under the hem of the long dress, a pair of black kid shoes, polished to brilliance. On their front, two very large, silver, shiny buckles. Then Anne looked up. For just the briefest of moments, their eyes met. Then, the old lady was gone. Accept the gifts I offer. Accept them, come what may, but see but once their giver, and live to rule the day. For God's sake, darling, haven't you made a move yet? Here. Hmm? Oh, thanks. Have to be a beaker, I'm afraid. Come to that, about the only clean crock in the house. And why the hell didn't you let me give you a hand with the dinner things? Dinner things? Your gourmet specialities certainly go through one hell of a lot of pots and pans. It's ruddy chaos down there. But I did... What? No, nothing. They won't take me long. 
Well, it's all up to you, I'm afraid. Overslept as it is. But the way things are going lately, it'd be a damn sight better if we cleared the decks before we turned in. On top of which, that damn cat must have knocked the sugar bowl over. It's all over the ruddy place. The fire won't catch because the sticks are damp and it rained in the night. So? So one of us seems to have left the living room window off the catch. The curtains, carpet and one of the armchairs are sodden. Oh, hell, love. I don't even have a clean shirt. Oh, oh, all right. We're winding close to the end here. The follow-on from that is Anne finally breaking down. And not telling him everything, of course, because what's the point of that now? But saying her very revealing line, you had suddenly become proud of me and I came to depend on it. And she puts forward the idea that the woman who was goody two-shoes wanted that to happen, planned for it, knew it would happen. It makes us wonder briefly, you know, after we've listened to the whole story and we're mulling every single part of it, you know, is this the same thing that happened to her? Did her intended jilt her in part because maybe someone made fun of him? Some of his guy friends made fun of him because she wasn't a good housewife? Old goody? And so he abandoned her? And so in her mania, I suppose, she became? No, well, we know, we're told that when she died, the house was a shambles. They could barely cut through everything to get into the wrecked up house to find her body. So it's in her afterlife that she becomes the perfect housewife. And she uses it as a weapon against every woman who moves in there. What is it about women who get left at the altar in these stories? They're so implacable. At least in Dream of Death, she went after the man who had left her and not after the innocent women who tried to live in her house. Okay, let's have her tell David in this extremely painful way, what's up? And the way he says love, the way he calls her love, oh, it's 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 just awful. You can see that David is the worst character here for me. It's like the tone of his voice is, I'm barely holding on to being able to love you now. Just barely still able to use this word. This is your last chance, love. David. Oh, poor... Poor David. It's all my doing. I should have told you before. Confided in you. But you suddenly grown so proud of me. Too proud. You see? I've grown to depend on it. She... She must have realized that. Counted on that. What she had in store right from that very first day. Right from the very first moment we walked through those doors. All those long years before. Just waiting for us. Who, my love? Her. But I don't understand. No. No, you... You could never understand. Too late to understand. Hold me closer. 
Oh, please hold me. I saw her, you see, just that once. But I should never have done that. It was the briefest glimpse. But I should never have caught her. She hated me for that. Oh, well, all that's left for us now is to roll through to this ending, which again is tough. How many times do we say that the simplest, most understated sound effects are the most powerful and the most wrenching? And in this case, that creak that goes throughout the the end of that scene is the worst. So we're going to listen to that again. It is tough. And then the double whammy, it's almost like a double ending of David's after story, he remarries a woman who is, again, the woman he marries is not domestic either, but she's a tough, smart, successful businesswoman. And so she is a different type of woman, as it were. So the question of whether she would, you know, he would respect her or she would gain identity from domesticity is totally out of the question. David is too scarred by what happened to ever want a woman like that again. So he turns from the traditional domestic woman. He turns from the sensual, silly, irrational girl, idiot woman to the tough and hard-nosed businesswoman whom he feels very certain will never get him involved in another horrific scene like the one we're about to hear. That evening, even as David walked up the path, he sensed a change in the place. The smoke curling up from the chimney, the brass knocker again worked to a brilliant shine, just as he'd remembered it. Anne? Anne? Anne, you up there? It was in the kitchen he found her, dear Anne. She was wearing her favorite dress. She was smiling at him, so tender and sweet a smile, as she swung gently back and forth from the heavy oak beam. There was one other detail David took in, in that first horrendous moment. The chair she must have climbed on and then jumped from was back in its usual place, below the recently polished window. And then beneath the chair, something as incongruous as it was bewildering. A pair of shoes, of the old-fashioned kind. Much too small for Anne, tiny. Low-heeled, kid leather, polished to brilliance. And in the front... Two heavy, silver, shiny buckles, and reflecting in their shine, the swinging corpse. David married again. Charles and Victoria considered it a a very unlikely choice. The new Mrs. Fordyce was quite the opposite of Anne, sophisticated, poised, almost glossy, 
she ran her own advertising agency, far too well for her male competitors. On the domestic front, and only in a crisis, she could just about manage to top up a coffee percolator. Thatch cottages gave her hay fever. And yet the match seemed to work well enough. <laughs> David probably prefers it this way. In other words, the new Mrs. Fordyce is not even a woman. She's not really a woman. She runs her business too well. She's not domestic at all. David went from woman to non-woman. Oh, wow, there's a lot of evil packed into this episode. And you're not sure how aware of it the writer really was. The writer was either making a very subtle feminist statement here or was not. And you tell me which one you think it is. We have to listen to the credits to find out who the writer was, so let's do that. That was Goody Two-Shoes, starring Michael Jaston as David Fordyce, Sandra Clark, Anne, and Daphne Hurd, Mrs. Perkins, with Francis Jeter, Victoria, and Nigel Graham, Charles. The Price of Fear was presented by Vincent Price, written by William Ingram, and directed by John Dias. All right, I'm going to make a generalization, if they can do it, I can, that William Ingram was probably not making a feminist statement. But that is the work that we have done with this episode. It's the work his writing made possible. It's that different yet valid interpretation that all works of art are open to. And that's what we did with Goody Two-Shoes. That's Goody Two-Shoes from The Price of Fear, and it is a dark journey. This is a story that was just inches away from going into the special, specially curated cauldronette of Halloween season. The fact that it's not in there perhaps gives you a little foretaste of just how rough this season's October is going to be. But that is for another time, right? We're not quite ready to think about that yet. I don't know. Maybe we are. Maybe Halloween is on our mind in Winter Springs, Covington, and Flowery Branch. But we're going to have to wait. We'll wait. We know that mid-century horror radio is not a seasonal item. It doesn't just apply when fall is in the trees, to quote that brief, beautiful little sentence from the story. It is a year-round, 24-7-3-6-5 thing, and that is why we will be back at this cauldron next week to keep walking down that road. And the fact that we don't ever see each other and you have never seen me, maybe it's a good thing. Of course, there's no real way for you to ever see me, so we shouldn't ever get into any trouble with that. Until we meet facelessly, but we meet again next week. Go your way. Be safe, be happy, and I'll see you soon.